Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. <clears throat> a little bit croaky after a night out last night. It's exciting, isn't it? Now parties are back. Uh, before we all get pinged again. Uh, right, uh, coming up, we've got the amazing Harry Enfield uh, talking about his new stage show at the Windsor's Endgame, but also Tory Boy, Loads of Money, and the amazing BBC sketch, uh, the Question Time sketch. If you haven't uh, watched it before, you're allowed to pause the podcast and go off and uh, watch that, and then you can come back and listen to Harry Enfield. Uh, in a moment, we'll also hear from our columnist panel, Night at the Marriott. But a reminder, if you want to come and do the quiz, particularly if you're listening from outside the UK, international quizzes are needed for our Thursday quiz. So if you want to play our quiz, can you get to number 10? Just email me now with your details, matt.jolly at times.radio, and we'll get you on the radio very soon. Right, Harry Enfield is coming up, but first it's Thursday, so our columnist panel is Night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. So, uh, let's start with uh, books uh, today, because obviously MPs are packing up and heading off on their summer holidays. We're also working very hard on their constituencies, of course. And uh, the Publishers Association, that's 125 uh, years old this year, and they have asked MPs, peers, journalists, for their summer reading recommendations. And James, you've been casting an eye over the list. What are MPs going to be reading on their sun loungers it's interesting. It all, these lists are always a bit, always a bit random. I think the main sort of theme emerges is that everyone's trying to show off a little bit, and Labour MPs and Conservative MPs are showing off in slightly different ways. Labour MPs are trying to sort of read books that are sort of they're showing off by reading books that are a bit trendy, uh, and Conservative MPs are trying to show off by reading books that are very old and very long. Um, <laughs> is my is my is my is my take on this? Um, I think the most the most the most intriguing the most intriguing. Um, reading recommendation is Boris Johnson, who says he's reading uh, Evelyn Waugh's novel Scoop on holiday, uh, which, of course, is about uh, an incompetent journalist who stumbles into the wrong job, um, <laughs> <laughs> which presumably is not the analogy he was thinking of. Um, you know what? I bet it is. I bet he just thinks well, it's just funny. Yeah. He probably does think it's just funny. But I just sort of, I mean, it's the, I mean, Scoop, obviously, is the ultimate, is the absolute ultimate journalist book that every journalist will, you know, bore on and on and on about. It kind of shows that he, if he genuinely is reading Scoop, and maybe he just picked it up at random. Uh, that shows that probably that he is a bit of a he's you know still a journalist at heart. If you you've seen the list as well, haven't you, uh, India? Which, which what what's the, what leapt out to you? It's really fascinating this list. Actually, I think you can tell a lot about people by what they claim they're going to read as well as what they do read. I don't believe that half the people on this list are going to read the books that they claim they're going to read. Um, well, lots of things leapt out. 
one of them being uh, Rishi Sunak claiming that he, he's going to spend summer reading uh, a book called 12 Yards by Ben Littleton, which is about football. It's about the history of the dropkick. Um, and this seems improbable. To me. It's like Rishi Sunak saying he's going to read, I don't know, Hold My Pint, a history of beer. You know, it's a kind of man of the people kind of choice. Uh, it's supposed to it's supposed to indicate and signify and hint at all sorts of kind of um, ordinary life going on, and I don't believe him. Yeah, it's a, it, uh, it's the art and psychology of the perfect penalty. I mean, come on, <laughs> come on. That's been that does feel like one that may have been uh, sort of photo uh, focus grouped yeah, uh, quite heavily before uh, getting onto that. I was quite struck that um, of all the people, and loads and loads, you know, cabinet ministers and shadow cabinet ministers, and all that, but we ha- we don't know what Keir Starmer's going to be reading. Uh, he he doesn't seem to have responded to this. Uh, to this request, I don't know. What... I was trying to. Ima- I was trying to imagine re- your previous item. I was trying to imagine Keir Starmer playing a game, <laughs> and I, do you know, I couldn't. I mean, maybe chess or backgammon, but like a game, a rumbustious game with lots of kind of shouting and you know, whacking the table, and or even running about outside, batting things. I just can't picture it at all. And I also find it quite difficult to imagine him reading something that is fun. Yes. Well, in fact, when we've been asking for uh, games that MPs might be playing on the last day of term, Lindsay had suggested Keir Starmer be playing Solitaire, <laughs> <laughs> which is a bit cruel, but also entirely, entirely plausible. What do we overall, what do we get from, uh, what do we learn about our politicians from, the, from their summer reading list, do you think, James? God, I mean, and, and there's any so many stinkers on there. Books there's that you so... think are dreadful that nobody should be reading. Well, I really can't believe that um, Robert Halfen MP is reading yes. uh, The Silmarillion by J.R. Tolkien, which is um, a deeply boring, deeply nerdy book, uh, beloved only of only of teenage boys around the age of 15. And even they don't finish it. Um, exactly. I'm, I'm very sceptical that William Ragg is reading The Way We Live Now by Anthony Trollope, which is, which is completely enormous uh, and is, you know, the Bible of anyone who uh, is trying to trying to show off what a great love they have of uh, Victorian novels that nobody reads. I just think it's so random, it's hard to draw any conclusions. I think you basically, you can split into people who, as I said, are being pretentious by reading old books, pretentious by reading new books, and then the handful of people who are reading books that, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people put Delia Owens, where the crawdads sing a couple of them, and I believe that they're reading this book, which is a bit of a phenomenon in the last couple of years, a kind of middle brown novel that a lot of people are, are actually, you know, are reading. I believe I believe them, but... I think there's a lot of, I mean, I think we can't even get, you know, I can't even begin to get into the kind of psychological games and uh, things that people are, um, people are, people are trying to play with the books they've recommended. Uh, Grant Shapps is reading um, The Years of Lyndon Johnson by Robert Caro, which is a book that if you get a list like this of politicians recommending books, inevitably uh, one politician <laughs> will recommend this to show how au fait they are with what uh, is, you know, famously the uh, ultimate political biography and, you know, the Bible of how to do politics. It is, it is it is actually a brilliant book. So I'm always glad to see that comes up. Um, I mean, the whole thing is like, I think it's so far, it's three or four volumes now and they're all sort of, you know, between 300 and 500 pages long. So we're just going to read the entire thing over over summer. I'm, I'm a bit sceptical, but um, it's good to see that there because it is an excellent book. And it is good that politicians always like to show off about having read it because it means that people remember it exists. What, my favourite bit on the list is uh, there's, a recommenda- there's a couple of recommendations but, uh, which are anonymous. <laughs> Yes, why? So somebody's recommended Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Everisto. Perfectly fine. Yeah, somebody else has recommended um, Penny Morden's book, Greater Britain After the Storm. It's like, well, maybe it's Penny Morden. (laughs) 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 And also, why has Carolyn Harris chosen a children's book? 
Artemis Fowl. Yes, well, there's a bit of that because um, Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, has recommended Fantastically Great Women Who Worked Wonders by Kate Pankhurst, which is a children's book about, which is, you know, it's a nice thing, you know, for your, uh, young girls and boys to read about women who have achieved a lot of NASA scientists. And all, but you can't honestly think the Shadow Chancellor's summer reading <laughs> is a children's book. Or at least you'd possibly um, hope not. So, James, with your old, now old, deputy books editor hat on, uh, what, what, what would you recommend for MPs to be reading this summer? Oh my God, that's so. Um, I, you know, I, 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 having banged on about Robert Caro, I do think everybody should read that because uh, it would make a lot. Of, I think it would make a lot of people um, a lot more competent. Because uh, I mean, when when you read it, you're just like, oh my God, this is how you, you know, this is how if you are deeply skilled at the art of politics, this is this is this is how you do it. And this is how someone who is yes, probably uh, this is about President Lyndon Johnson. Um, yes, someone is probably slightly a psychopath, but <laughs> is also a complete genius. And in fact, you begin to wonder, do we want everybody to uh, learn all of Lyndon Johnson's tricks? And it makes you wonder whether we wouldn't, wouldn't prefer to have some of our politicians being remaining a little more incompetent rather than having this kind of slightly terrifying insight into... The thing, um, that's, the thing that's put me off is it's so massive and there's several volumes. It's so much of it. So fun, though. When you, it, when you get into it, I was like... And do you know what the other thing is? It's like it, a thriller. I was present, co- present company accepted. The sort of politicians and journalists who always go on about it are quite annoying. I and agree. That slightly puts me off. I accept. I may be slightly <laughs> annoying. Um, no, no, present company accepted. I'm well, I don't know. I'm willing to. I'm willing to. I'm willing to accept that. I do. Th- I do think it is like. I think it has a maybe now has a slightly bad reputation, but is a lot more fun than you'd think. What about you, uh, India? What would you recommend for politicians to read? Um, I've just noticed actually Robert Buckland, Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice, is reading the second volume of oh, no, the first volume. Sorry, of uh, Chips Channon's very, very un-PC, gossipy, sort of terrible but fascinating diaries, which is quite interesting because you wouldn't think he was a particularly sort of gossipy and terrible person. Uh, My recommendation for summer reading, actually, I've got a piece on this coming out, I think, either this Sunday or the Sunday after uh, for kind of um, books that feel like you're on holiday but that aren't sort of completely inane, so um, people will have to... Oh, Wait, good, good teasing ahead. Insight. Get yourself a Times <laughs> Digital subscription and all of that. Uh, my what? Because I, I, uh, we've got. Uh, I'm quite looking forward to this. So uh, my, the thing that I'm genuinely going to be reading on my holiday next week is uh, John Stonehouse, My Father, which is a book by Julia Stonehouse, and her dad was the MP who faked his own death and disappeared. Oh yes, and yes, then came yes. back. And I think the book is out this week or next week. I think she's on the show in a couple of weeks' time. And actually. I mean, obviously, I'd read all of the books that we discuss when people come on the show, but I'm actually really looking forward to it because I was only dimly aware of the story of John Stonehouse until I saw This House, the James Graham uh, mm. play about the, the whipping in the 70s? 70s. 70s. Uh, and, the, yeah, the John Stonehouse is like a very small part of that where he faked his death in Miami and then turned up in Australia and was only caught because uh, he... Uh, it was around the same time that Lord Lucan had gone missing and he was a British man reading new, the new British news in the newspaper and someone said, I think that's Lord Lucan. And so he was arrested by the police and it turned out he wasn't Lord Lucan, but he had to prove he wasn't Lord Lucan. He had to reveal he was, in fact, the also not dead uh, John Stonehouse. So anyway, that's God, my... That sounds good. Yeah, so that, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, yes, Julia Stonehouse, I think. What are you actually going to be reading this summer, India? I am going to be doing what I was supposed to be doing last summer, which was rereading uh, Simonon. Um, many, 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 many novels. Do you, you could sort of go on into, um, until Christmas, probably. But they're, um, they're very pleasing to me. They're short. 
they're really really satisfying and they are brilliant and i'm also i'm finishing my own book so i can only read very specific things otherwise you kind of absorb other people's writing style oh, or mannerisms or and you know and then these strange sentences come out that aren't actually you at all so i reckon by reading belgian crime fiction from the 20th century i'm probably i'm probably fine you steer clear of that. Uh, talking of short and satisfying what are you reading james uh, well, on the, on, in, my, in my life, which is now basically a perpetual hunt for, for column ideas, um, I'm, read, I'm, um, I'm going to read, I've just ordered actually a book I'm quite excited about, George Packer, who writes The Atlantic and New Yorker, has got a book called The Four Americas, where he basically divides America up into four, he says America's kind of broken into these four parts, he says I think it's just America, real America, smart America and free America, and I want to read it and see if there's a column in which I can then divide Britain up into uh, for Britons, but I don't know if that's going to be possible. That's my ambitious plan. I'm going to the Lake District this weekend. That's my ambitious uh, plan for the Lake District, which will make me very fun, very fun to be around. <laughs> <laughs> I can think of worse to go on with. Um, uh, James, let's talk about your column uh, about it's sort of all, well, sorry, because it was connected language and sort of politically correct language and the way it all just becomes sort of meaningless euphemistic nonsense. Yeah, uh, well, you've put it, you've put it very well. Um, so this column basically started with um, another book, which um, I, I read last year. and Really recommend. It's completely it's really opened my mind a lot of things. Um, which is called In Pursuit of Civility by a historian called Keith Thomas, which is a history of the birth of uh, basically the birth of good manners. And it's completely to see how this stuff all kind of came about. You know, three hundred, four hundred years ago, completely opens your eyes to the way that we sort of interact with each other and the forms of good manners we have now. And I was sort of thinking about politically correct language, which, you know, I think began to sort of um, enter our society in the 90s. And, you know, I think is now really kind of entrenched. We take so much politically, politically correct language uh, for granted. And reading reading this book by Keith Thomas, which is all about how um, these kind of codes of manners depend on these like very elaborate ways of speaking, um, you know, always sort of trying to find a long way to say something as a sort of sign of courtesy to other people. And I was just thinking sort of so much of this is true of politically correct language. Um, I was reading the other day, um, just in passing, a news story about someone who described themselves as um, a fat-bodied person. And I was just like, what a fascinating... That, the phrase includes the word fat, but how fascinating that's more polite to just say it in a more long way. So the sort of basic argument of my column, sorry, I'm being a bit uh, roundabout here, is that I think it's kind of basically agreed that in the 60s, we kind of rejected a lot of the kind of, you know, stuffy rules about um, language and manners and codes of civility that, you know, we'd had for most most of our history. People in the kind of 1930s consulting these etiquette books about how to write to bishops and stuff. And I think <laughs> my basic theory is all that has come back and... That's probably a mark of um, after that kind of economic boom from between the 60s and the 90s. This is a mark of a society that's more anxious about status and mastering these kind of complex uh, language codes about political correctness is often a sign for middle class people, perhaps, to signal that they they're kind of they're part of this. They have this kind of cultural capital um, that other people don't have. Uh, that was quite a long winded way of saying it, but basically recited my column there. Um, what do you think? Do you agree with James in there? I'm really interested in the idea that inclusive language is exclusive. I think that's really fascinating. And I think it's really true. Um, I mean, you know, taking the knee, for example, if you said kneeling, kneeling with its connotations of respect and humility is the thing that everybody can understand. Uh, you know, I think there wouldn't have been this difficulty in some, this is sort of absurd in my mind, but anyway, there's difficulty in some people's minds about what it represented and what it signified. Um, so I think simple language 
that everybody can understand makes everybody get to the point of the idea much, much faster than these sort of contortions and convolutions that are really off-putting. And as James says in his column, you know, indicates that, you know, over here, we are right-thinking people. And all you over there who are baffled by this language or don't understand it or find it absurd are are less morally good than us in the middle. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, it's, well, yeah, it's genuinely really interesting. I think that it happens in all walks of life, in politics especially, where in an attempt to be more inclusive, no, you, you reach a point where nobody has any clue what you're talking about. Yeah, you stop making sense. Stop literally. making sense. Well, luckily, both of you made lots of sense today. Indy Knight and James Marriott there, and of course you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times. Just get yourself a subscription, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Harry Enfield. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for my interview with Harry Enfield. Harry Enfield began his career doing voices on spitting image of now long-forgotten politicians. In the past 40 years, he's created some of the best, most enduring, memorable and funny comic characters. Thatcherite wide boys he poked fun out with loads of money and layabouts with Wayne and Wayne Nettasolob. He sent up teenage politicians with Toy Boy and uh, just about every teenager everywhere with Kevin the Teenager. Well, moving from politics to royalty, he's been playing Prince Charles in the brilliant Channel 4 series The Windsors which is a sort of deranged soap opera taking us behind the velvet curtains of the royal family. And now he's taking it onto the stage. One of the biggest new shows to open on the West End this summer, fingers crossed. The Windsor's Endgame. We'll see Harry making his musicals debut. Well, I caught up with Harry uh, this week between rehearsals. Keep an eye out, ear out, enjoy this, uh, for song and dance numbers in the background. And uh, I asked about everything from how to get a break in comedy to that question time sketch. Just so you know, there is a teeny tiny bit of adult language, but nothing to make you choke on your 11s, uh, but uh, it seemed gratuitous to uh, beep it out. So, uh, this is my interview with Harry Enfield, and I began by asking him to explain the, the Windsors to the uninitiated. Uh, the Windsors is what Tracy Ann Oberman, who's playing um, uh, Camilla, she says that it's like the crown, only based on fact. That's her thing, <laughs> which I think is a very good line. As I see it on television, what we do is um, I see it as like the writers of Dynasty have been told to write a thing about the royals, but they don't know anything about the royals because they live in L.A. And all they've been given are the British red tops for their research material. So it's all purely based 
on what's been written in the papers and then exaggerated a bit. Uh, so it's like a ridiculous soap opera, yeah. So there are like grains of truth in there and Harry and uh, William have their sort of fallings out and Harry and Meghan are in America and all. So there are, there are bits in there, Prince Andrew is a particularly interesting character. So there are bits in there which have a grain of truth. But you're right, it's basically like a soap opera written by someone who's only ever seen Mail Online. Yeah, exactly. So it's all, or not just the Mail Online. You know, there was something in one of the papers the other day with, you know, that. Sorry, that's just someone being tortured out there. <laughs> I'll tell you about that in a minute. It's got torture, this show. Um, you know, there was something the other day with, um, it was like Will's quote, you know, I'll never speak to you again, Harry, unless you divorce Meghan. And you think, you know, who made that up? And who, you know, <laughs> you know it's just rubbish. So it's like full of that kind of stuff that I'm sure the royals, if they saw it, they just think, well, this is just ridiculous, you know, not based on them at all. I was going to ask you that because obviously at various times, stars of the crown have mentioned that, you know, maybe William's seen an episode or Camilla. Have you ever been aware of anyone in and around the royals having seen the Windsors? Well, you hear sort of rumours about it, Matt, but, um, you know, you can't back them up. The kind of rumours that would make the red tops, but <laughs> make my voice. <laughs> um, and what about, so you, you play Prince Charles? I play uh, Prince Charles in the uh, on telly and in the end game. Uh, yeah, I play Prince Charles. And the basic plot is that the Queen has now abdicated. And uh, it's like a battle to the death between Wills and Kate and Charles and uh, Camilla. And Charles and Camilla are trying to take Britain back to the Dark Ages because uh, Boris Johnson was pissed when he did the Brexit Treaty. And instead of putting... Uh, Putting power back to 1973, he put it back to 1173. So uh, I'm technically the feudal lord of all Britain. And uh, Wills and Kate are the sort of there to try and restore constitutional monarchy. And it's got lots of torture, as you just heard. <laughs> so that's what's going on in the background, because you're in the middle of rehearsals right now. Yeah, sorry, there's a song going on about the Fab Four. Um, so yeah. this is so it's an all singing, all dancing West End production. Yeah, this is a big. Yeah, it's the first time I've done musical theatre, darling, and I now feel like a proper actor. Yeah, I have to I've, dance. I've seen your live show that you did with Paul Whitehouse. There's a certain amount of moving around at the same time as music, but yeah, a little proper, bit of shuffling around. Yeah, we yeah, did. But this is proper musical. Yeah, this is proper music. Well, it's got five really good songs in it, so it's like half a half a musical. Yeah, it, it's really funny. I mean, they're so brilliant. Every everybody, you know, it's like the only people from the telecast, uh, me and Matt, who plays Edwards, and Tim, who plays Andrew. <laughs> and uh, obviously, Andrew's got a fairly big role, but and and Matt is sort of um, Prince Edward is the sort of master of ceremonies kind of thing, and everyone else is new for the musical kind of thing. And they've all got amazing voices and they're really funny. It's just really good. So I know you're an opera fan. Are you an opera quality singer? No, I am not. <laughs> but I do have a deep bass voice. He got rather like the musical director said, oh, you've got a very deep voice. Yes, I have. So <laughs> I know to get told. Very, uh... very into it now. In that situation, I normally get told I've got a very deep voice and can I stop singing? Because that's yeah. the only thing you can hear. Well, I do at home, yeah. I get yeah, told yeah. to stop singing, yeah. <laughs> you, you're playing Prince Charles on stage. 
you've obviously done impressions. Uh, you know, you would do on Spitting Image. Did you, did you used to do Charles when you were doing Spitting Image? No, Chris Barry did. Uh, okay. No, I didn't. I didn't do Charles. I just, I mean, no one would know any of these people anymore. You know, it's people like, <laughs> uh, I don't know, Leon Britton, people like that. I did. Yeah. So that's who you would do. But you've had you, your your career has been punctuated with like your own creations, but then also satirical send-ups of yeah yeah and i've actually uh i played the queen a couple of years ago for david williams yeah it's a very funny sketch actually it's called who does one think one is i played the queen and we put david on some boxes so that i'm tiny and it works really well it's, it's great it looks really sweet and their grandson was your grandfather king george v yeah what did he do <laughs> he was the king Another one, you're having a laugh. <laughs> One's indeed was getting rather big-headed. One's family tree seems to be chock-a-block with kings and queens. Yes. When I was looking back through everything you've done and all the stuff of yours that I've, I've always enjoyed, there is, there is a thread of politics that runs through it, whether it was loads of money, was satirising, that sort of Thatcherite mentality. I've got piles! <laughs> piles and money! Loads and money! on loads of money when you were doing it at what point do i've had this similar conversation with uh al murray when he was talking about the pub landlord when the person you're sending up starts enjoying the thing that you're doing well i think everyone enjoys being sent up <laughs> you know that's always been the case you know yeah that's what your mates do they take the piss out of you don't they and that's what your family do yeah. so of course they enjoyed it it you know there was a sort of thing I think in The Guardian at the time of, oh, Harry's given up doing the character because the people who he was sending up like it. And I thought, well, that's because it's funny that they like it and because I'm taking the piss out of them. Yeah. You know, I've got these characters like the one who has a shop called I Saw You Coming, which yes. are really popular with people who go to shops called I Saw You Coming, <laughs> you know, because, you know, that's what a sense of humour is, taking the piss out of yourself. Yeah, and that self recognition. You go, oh God, I am that person. And what yeah. about what about what about Tory boy? Do you want to look out of your bedroom window one morning to find that your car has been taken away by a stranger? It's not been stolen. Oh no, it's been given away by Brussels to a Spanish fisherman. <laughs> That's what Tony Blair wants. Who was that based on? William Hague is probably the most obvious one. But yeah. who else was in that? in that melting pot? I don't really know. It was sort of William Hague, really. Yeah. Who, you know, when I was growing up and into punk and reggae and stuff, he was appearing at the Tory party conference, you know. And uh, so he was always a sort of a, a bit of a bete noir, really, in terms of, you know, as a kid. I've met yeah. him since and he's really, really funny and clever. And in fact, I did a gig with him once uh, and he made a speech and he brought the house down and I made a speech and no one laughed at all. So <laughs> hats off to him. He got his revenge. Well, he's now a very valued, he's now a Times columnist. He's now a, he's now a stable mate. Uh, is he a lord time. or something now? Yes, he is a lord now. Uh, right. He's a lord um, and he writes for the Times. So, you know, he's a, he's a fine yeah. guy. I'm glad you were still... He's you're a very nice good writer him. and he's a yes, he very, very funny man. Get him on the subject of John Redwood. Well, that was uh, Harry Enfield, and we'll hear for more from him in a moment. Uh, but as I mentioned to him there, William Hague is a Times columnist, and he appears on the Leaders' Panel on Times Radio every Tuesday. So this week, 
because I spoke to Harry early this week, we put what Harry Enfield had to say to William Hague. Stig and Asma asked him if he remembers the night that uh, William Hague brought the house down. I have to say, I don't, really. Uh, I've given so many speeches, after dinner speeches, must be thousands of them over the years. I vaguely remember some occasion where Harry Enfield did really bomb. And uh, by the way, he's saying all those nice things about me. Harry Enfield, he's great company. He is... Um, you know, he's at least as funny as he looks. He was a little bit unsure there in that clip as to who Tory Boy was was based on, and it didn't it didn't sound like me or look like me. So if it was based on me, it was pretty loosely based. Was <laughs> William Hague uh, responding to those allegations? Now, I can't speak to you and not ask you about the question time sketch, which I think is one of the greatest three minutes of TV comedy. Ever. Oh, no, that's think, very kind of you, Matt. I think Thank partly but because I've had to sit through question time so often. Yeah. <laughs> and you've taken my entire life experience of watching it and distilled it into three minutes. <laughs> um, well, it's good fun to do at the time, you know. Um, did you have to spend that, a lot of time that, that watching was on it? Harry and Paul. I think that was on Harry and Paul. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it is on YouTube. If everyone feeling yeah, no, a bit, it's really good fun. No, to that was the, but it's moved on from there because it's not David Dimbleby anymore. No. And it, you know, the <laughs> issues are different. You know, now it would all be the COVID, the COVID, wouldn't it? <laughs> Does the panel think the COVID, the COVID, the COVID? And has the government got it completely wrong and all that stuff, you know? Wouldn't it? But it's still, it still just works because you have all the same, exactly the same issues raised by the same. So it is, it yeah. is terrific. Do you, um, it's interesting you're doing royals and not politics, it, but you do anything political. Well, there is sort of politics in the Windsor. So, you know, I remember there was a, like a brilliant, <laughs> uh, like a row I was having with Wills in one of the things, and it was uh, one of the programmes, and, you know, he's, and, and Wills is saying, don't you think we're irrelevant now? And I'm going, well, someone's paying me £19 million a year to do something. <laughs> and it was like, oh, help, really? Is that what he gets paid? You know, it's sort of fairly, fairly hard, you know. And I think that's what Bert and George, the writers, have always thought. You know, they're fair game because we pay for them and uh you know they don't have to do it and as harry doesn't want to do it anymore you know but, well he always you know, sort of does hard. but on his own terms a bit well yeah i mean you know let's face it man we wouldn't swap places with any of them would we no. for the houses and this and that you know um and this does i guess it touches on that because there's some great scenes with harry and megan over there, and then they come to rescue us and make the world all right again after the dark ages. And we got sword fights and everything. It's and, and uh, I get killed in the end. Oh no! Oh, don't give it away! Don't give it away! Well, it's, um, maybe it's not the end. Maybe it's just a twist. <laughs> and uh, what uh, I wonder if you, what was your view of the royal family before you started doing this? And do you feel more? Affection, sympathy towards them? Have you become a Republican as a result? Is it changed? No, I've never really had much of a feeling about the royal family other than respect. And, you know, I do respect them and I wouldn't want to be them. And I'm not a royalist, but, uh, you know, I'd sooner, I don't know who I'd prefer, Gary Lineker, maybe. As, the as, kind of elected, as an elected, elected head maybe of state. Maybe as elected head of state. Someone who's never been in politics as head of state is a good thing to have. But let's face it, you know, there's, 
there's very few things that Prince Charles says in, in life that I disagree with. You know, he's been banging on about the environment for the last 30, 40 years. And, uh, you know, people find out a bit too much about his private life and they mock him for that. And we all mock him for that. And he has to put up with that. But I wouldn't mind him being absolute monarch for 10 years. If, if only to sort out climate change. If you just... Yeah. Just, just, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a royalist, but I think as a man... You know, he's a good man. I mean, I'm partly was thinking in normal times, you'd have the tourists flocking, expecting a, yeah. a, a sort of tribute <laughs> to the royal family and then yeah. coming away thinking, that can't be right. Yeah. Is that right? Did they really <laughs> do that? <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Um, especially there's a scene like, there's a sex scene. I'm having sex with Camilla in, in one bit. They, they wouldn't like that, the tourists, would they? <laughs> I suspect not. I so how is it in uh, putting putting up a show in the middle of or the tail end of a pandemic and well, we've heard other know, shows being knocked out. How yeah, many have you been tested been, I mean, every five us, minutes? Yeah, no, yeah, we, you know, we test ourselves every day. We do all that, you know. I, I mean, obviously, I'm ancient now. I'm the oldest person by miles. I'm 60 now. And uh, I'm a decade older than anyone else, at least. And um, so I'm the grand old man, darling. Well, I'm the junior, I'm the new boy at, at musical theatre. And, uh, you know, I've had my jabs, everyone's had their jabs and, you know, we're just getting on with it and kind of positive energy and the tickets are selling. And if you get 60,000 people at a football match, I, I, I think we're going to be fine. I think we're going to be fine. And if people are worried about it, they should just test themselves before they come or whatever. But I think... Uh, we're all going to be fine. And just fingers crossed that none of you test positive because that seems to be what's knocking out other other shows. I don't think we will. And then what have you? How long? Because it's quite a, it's a sort of limited running. That how long is it on for? If people are do do you want to get tickets? Yeah, it's on for the second of August. Uh, the preview start. Then we open on the tenth, and it closes uh, after the first week of October. It's the so Prince that, of Wales Theatre, isn't it? Prince of Wales Theatre, named yeah, it. <laughs> Entirely fittingly. And uh, and then what, I mean, without giving too much away about what happens at the end of the play, is that the end of the Windsors then? Well, I think we hope that we'll get this in such good shape. It'll be in so, such good shape by the end that, you know, when we're in more normal times, we can do it again. That's certainly my thought is it'd be great to take it around the country. You know, it's a bit like a panto. There's a bit of booing and shouting and stuff. And I walk amongst the audience trying to sell people sweets and stuff. And... Uh, you know, it's like really good fun. And I hope that we'll just carry on doing it. I don't know about the end of the Windsors. George, who wrote the Windsors with Bert, sadly died last year. And uh, so Bert's sort of on his own now. But we, you know, I'd love them to do it again on Channel 4, but I know they haven't got any money. And I suppose, yeah, doing it live in front of an audience at least means that's more your natural territory, isn't it? Being able to hear that people are enjoying what the oh, thing that you're really, doing. It's just such fun to do. You know, I've done a couple of other plays, but uh, this has been such fun. And I just know everyone's going to love it who comes. And just finally, I want to ask you, because well, you, you mentioned you were 60. I wasn't going to do that. But you've been in the business for some time yeah. now. Mm. Having gone from being part-time milkman and mate of the plaster poor White House to, you know, being on the TV almost overnight. Yeah. How tough is it these days for comedians to, to get a similar break? It's like you were saying, you know, TV channels don't want to spend money on comedy these days. Well, I think sketch comedy is hard because um, for some reason the budgets go down and down and down. I mean, they've always been much lower than drama. 
but they go down and down and down. And in the end, you know, with Harry and Paul, when we were doing that, it, we just couldn't make it anymore because it's much more expensive to make in terms of, you know, if you're changing character all day, you're in makeup half the day. So you only get half the day filming. And uh, so, you know, it just became, you know, I mean, budget wise, it became hard, but uh, I'm hoping to do a thing for the BBC next year because it's 100 years of the BBC and um, I've been asked to do a, a kind of tribute of that because I did a sort of 50 years of BBC Two. Yes, yeah. I remember that. And that was like some of those those like parody sketches were bought out yeah. of. Yeah, so we're hoping to do a sort of 100 years thing. Um, so who have you who have you got in your sights now for a hundred years? You've literally got anyone for the past hundred years. Uh, yeah, we we'll have to choose and we'll have to sort of mix and match and kind of make it make it all yeah. work um, in some sort of weird logic, you know. But I've got an <laughs> idea. I think it'll work, you know. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, but for young comics, you know, I think um, I think actually it's really good. You know, they've got all these um, quiz shows and things like that they can go on. And that gives them publicity and then they can go off around the country. It's it's harder for sketch comedy and people like me, I think. But for them, you know, for stand-up, it's never been so good, except for the pandemic, obviously. Which, fingers crossed, we're now, at, you know, theatres are now open and full and for the exception. I suppose yeah. at least you're a stand-up. you just have to be positive about it and, you know, yeah. hope that um, everything will be all right. I think we're all careful. You know, everywhere I go at the moment, people are still wearing masks. And, you know, nobody really trusts the government to, if they say, oh, yeah, you don't have to wear a mask now, that might be the law. But they've done so many U-turns as they did at the weekends. You know, I don't think anyone really trusts that. So we're all sort of carrying on at the moment. Yeah, the wisdom of crowds. People look about and think, well, everyone else has got a mask and I'll stick mine on. Yeah. Uh, and if it means that they get to go out, go on the train, go on the tube, go to the theatre, then that's, you know, yeah. a mask seems like a small price to pay. But yeah, yeah. I think it's going to well, be fun. Yes, exactly. We could do with some fun. And yeah. I'm not sure there's uh, more fun or any silliness. Anything quite so silly as uh, the Windsor's End game. So it sounds no. <laughs> Especially when Megan gets tortured, as you just heard. As we just heard. <laughs> Live torturing on, on Zoom. Uh, Harry Edfield. Got a wonderful scream. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> that was what clinched it for in the uh, in the audition. Um, Harry Enfield, it's been loaded to speak to you. Best of luck with the Windsor's End game when it hope well it will definitely open on august the second brilliant thank you so much matt that's harry enfield there and you can find out more about the show and get tickets at the windsor and the windsor's endgame dot com that's all we've got time for on this episode of the red box podcast don't forget you can listen to me live monday to friday 10 till 1 on times radio and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast and if you're feeling particularly nice why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from